Ander, who dominates death. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you want to find your way to Luke chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 11 here in just a little bit. But as we turn our focus to God's Word for us on this day, I want to ask each of you some important questions. What comes to mind when you consider your own death? Friend, are you afraid of death? When when you consider the end of your physical life, does terror strike into your very soul? Are you fearfully uncertain about what awaits you once the clock of your time among the living here on earth expires? Because it's an obvious truth to us that death knows no strangers. I don't know if any of you have looked into the latest statistics, but one out of one individuals will die, okay? The statistics are pretty steady on that. Comedian Robin Williams had this to say once. He said, death is nature's way of saying your table is ready. And to that, I'll add that each one of us is on death's waiting list. If the Lord does not return for some of us first, then each of us should expect that we would have an appointment with death. And many individuals are fearful of death. Many have tried to find ways to overcome death's sting. In my preparations just this week, I read about an initiative that has been founded by a Russian tycoon named Dmitry Itskov. And this initiative is known as the 2045 Initiative. Now, Itzkov has poured millions of dollars of his own fortune into his own dream that death can be defeated by the year 2045. And Itzkov's dream has garnered quite a bit of support from the likes even of a, a chief engineer, a director of engineering at Google known as Ray Kurtzwill. But if you dig a little deeper into Itzkov's ambitions, you may start questioning, ultimately, if what he considers to be defeating death is really defeating death at all. Because what Itzkov ultimately desires to do is to transfer an individual's personality to some more advanced non-biological carrier that will then carry on that individual's life once the biology of that individual through his physical body, he stops. So Itzkov's grand plan to escape death is to design a way to transfer human personality and human consciousness and human memories to computers, which will then become these immortal super beings that escape the scourge of death. And let me just say, I can understand why some scientists are heading in that direction. If you deny the existence of God and the only God who can overcome death, then then the best you have to offer is either that you'll cheat death and live for a longer amount of time or that you'll find some mechanism to carry on your biology's legacy once your biology is done. So it's no surprise to me then to read revelations like the ones that came out this past week. Some of you know that Stephen Hawking, this famous scientist who died back in March released a book just this past week posthumously his family members pulled together the notes of what he was thinking about at the time of his passing and have produced a book that now reflects some of Hawking's own thinking near the time of his death 
And in this resulting book, we find the brash conclusions from Stephen Hawking that there is no God and no one directs the universe and that the laws of science are to be credited for the creation of the universe. That's Hawking's perspective, not Jeremy's. But Hawking, like its gov, predicts this future where artificial intelligence and gene editing technologies will produce what he ultimately describes as this race of superhumans. So that's a perspective that kind of meshes together from two different scientists, or really a scientist and a tycoon. But here we find the scientist and the tycoon and the director of engineering at Google are all struggling to make sense of this common question, this question that each one of us has. And the question is this, is there any hope for a meaningful existence beyond death? Is there any way to overcome the sting? Of death. Well, if you believe that there is a God who brought order to the cosmos and who defies the scientific law of entropy through that bringing order into cosmos, as I believe, and if you believe that this God is both capable and willing to communicate with his creatures, as I do, and if you believe that this creator God has revealed himself through his living word in the person of Jesus Christ and through his written word in the collection of God-inspired readings that we share together and study each week, known as the Bible, as I do. And if you believe that Jesus' ability to do what no other man has ever done in a ministry that literally split our accounting of time in half is proof that he is God in the flesh and the revealer of God's heart and of God's plans, as I do believe. If you believe these things, my friends, then today's passage ought to bring a ray of hope for you as you consider this question. Who or what can defeat death? We're on a deliberate march through the book of Luke, which is brought us ultimately to this account here today in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Luke, more than any other God-inspired author of these records of Jesus' life that we know as the Gospels, Luke, more than any of those others, draws emphasis to ultimately those who would be known as the outcasts of society. Those who others may be rejected or spurned for various reasons. And that's why we've titled ultimately this series that we're in the midst of now as we go through the book of Luke, Outcasts, because Luke is the gospel for the rejected. And today's passage keeps with this theme, because in today's passage, we're going to encounter a widow from nowhere special whose only son had died. And now, so if she's a widow, she's obviously lost her husband. Not only has this woman lost her husband, she has lost her only child. He's a young man. And, and she lived in the society where, this patriarchal society where ultimately it was up to the men to bring home the bacon. It, it was up to the men to support their families. And so she's lost all of the men in her life. She's entering now into a time when the best that she could potentially hope for, perhaps, would be begging for what others might provide to her. And while many passages we find in Luke have parallels in the Gospels of Matthew or Mark, today's passage is actually unique to the book of Luke. Only Luke records these events. And we're going to read how the account of a miracle 
that was unheard of before this event really makes such a difference and shows us so much insight into who Jesus is. Now, in scriptures, there are three instances where we find that Jesus actually raises an individual back from the dead, bringing them back to life. He raised the daughter of Jairus. That miracle is recorded in all three of what we know as the synoptic gospels. The gospels are really similar in their content, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then he also, you'll know from the book of John, John chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the second of those instances where Jesus raises someone from the dead. The third is the one that we find here in today's passage where Jesus raised this widow's only son here in Luke chapter 7. So today's passage is an account of Jesus overcoming death. If you're able now, I'd ask that you just stand as we, as we read together this account of what Jesus has done in overcoming death, starting in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he, that is Jesus, went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all, all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And friends, I hope that you will hear this message from the word of God today. The message is this, Jesus is the compassionate commander who dominates death. Let me say that again, Jesus is the compassionate commander who dominates death. Just as he does for the widow and her dead son in this passage here today, Jesus has seen our greatest need and he has moved with great authority to overcome our common enemy. And because of who he is and what he has done for us, Jesus deserves our supreme devotion above all else. In this brief, very brief interaction from Luke chapter 7, Jesus launches a warning shot in the war with death. And because of what Jesus proves through this passage today and what he promises to do in the near future, my friends, we have a message to speak to death. Death your days are numbered. Do you believe that, friends? Do you believe that the days of death are numbered? If you believe that, just go ahead and speak out loud those faithful words and repeat after me. Death, your days are numbered. Because of the gift of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, I want to spend a little bit of time taunting death today. And there's a biblical precedent for this, by the way, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes about the resurrection of Christ. 
and how Christ has overcome death. And Christ is the first fruits of those who will come after him in overcoming death. And Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Well, the first taunt that I want to share with you based on the word of God today is this death. Your days are numbered because Jesus is compassionate. The compassion of our Lord is written all over this passage here today. And it's because of his great compassion that Jesus deals with death in this passage that we find before us here today. Now, I see three evidences of Jesus' compassion in this passage. First, with compassion, Jesus sees our sorrows. In these verses, we're presented with a widow. That, That means she's already lost her husband. And now her sorrow is increased as we read that her only son is being carried out of the city in a coffin prepared for burial. He is dead. And Luke doesn't tell us how old this young man is. Although when it's all said and done, ultimately we find that Jesus gives this man back to his mother. So not giving her to his wife. We can guess that this man was Not yet married. This word, which ultimately in the Greek means young man, would often refer to a youth. So we can expect that someone in this age range who was not yet married would be somewhere in the range of 14 to 21 years old. So we're talking about a young man somewhere in that span of his life, more than likely. And can you imagine? Can can you imagine the devastation of losing your only child? Some of you have known that devastation of losing a child. No parent should have to go through that situation. What great grief this brings. And imagine just how bleak the situation must have seen from from the eyes of this woman in this moment, in her time of need. And Jesus wanted to meet the needs of this weeping woman with a gut-wrenching sort of capacity. You see, the word that Luke uses here for compassion in verse 13 when he says, do not weep. Luke ultimately says, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, do not weep. That word for compassion there in verse 13 is a word that's really related to the bowels of an individual. This word describes feelings deep within. Jesus was feeling some very deep feelings within his very physical stature as man very man and jesus had this deep gut-wrenching feeling for this woman in her time of need and jesus wanted to meet the needs of this weeping woman with a gut-wrenching compassion and friends you should know that jesus does not take delight in your weeping Whenever we read about the Lord Jesus encountering human sorrow and need, we find that he feels compassion. He felt compassion then when he was present on the earth, and he feels compassion now as he rules in the heavenlies as our sympathetic, interceding high priest. Jesus is not indifferent to your sorrows. He is not apathetic when it comes to your needs. And so I ask you, are you going through a tough time in life right now? You may think that nobody else understands. You may get the impression that nobody cares. But you would be wrong. 
Because there is a Savior whose compassion gives an enduring hope. And with compassion, Jesus sees our sorrows. Furthermore, with compassion, Jesus moves to meet our needs. This woman had no idea of what kind of encounter that she was in for on this day. But Jesus did. You see, this passage starts out with the word soon afterwards. After what? Well, the passage we looked at last week, if you remember, was when Jesus healed this centurion slave. And we read about that event. It happens in a city of Galilee known as Capernaum. And then, and then Luke reveals for us here in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, that now Jesus, after a little while after that, now Jesus is in this city known as Nain. Now, Nain was about 25 miles southwest of where Capernaum was. So we're talking about a day's journey, ultimately. Just a little while after this healing, Jesus has taken his whole entourage down to this city of Nain, and that's where he encounters this woman. And do you know what's special about the city of Nain in the Bible? Aside from this event, pretty much nothing. All right, this is not a town of renown. This is a town that is a day's journey from where Jesus was, but, but, but it was a, a town where Jesus would ultimately have to go out of his way into a place that really didn't matter, matter much for anyone else in order to do what he's going to do on this day. And now another thing that's interesting to note is that the Jews would not leave a body laying around in the city for long because they were actually... In God's Old Testament law, we find this revelation that ultimately a body would make a town unclean. Touching a body would make you ceremonially unclean. You couldn't enter into the temple. Even being in a tent where a dead body had been, you would, you would be ceremonially unclean. You'd have to go through these rituals and wait a certain amount of time in order to be clean and be able to worship God again. So the Jews would take their dead very quickly after they had passed away. Most often on the exact same day, they would have the funeral for that individual. So here we have Jesus traveling a day in the, into the middle of nowhere, perhaps even before this young man had died, because he's got a day's journey, and this young man probably died on this very day. Why was Jesus moving that way? Because there was a need that Jesus wanted to meet. And in this remarkable moment, Two crowds converge with one another. One crowd is looking down. It's a crowd of a funeral procession. Now, Jewish funeral processions would typically hire a wailing woman. You could think of her being kind of at the front of the pack, leading individuals in this time of mourning. It's kind of like when we have a police escort that goes for our funerals. This wailing woman would be there. Along with musicians, there would be someone playing the cymbals, and there would be a couple of individuals who would be playing the flute, and they would go together in this kind of entourage of a funeral procession. And you can imagine, right, that this is a guy who people really loved. We, we read in Luke that there was this great crowd from among the city that was there in this time of mourning. And they're all looking down. They're all thinking how sorrowful. They're all thinking how sad. Oh, how tough it's going to be for this poor widow in the wake of what happens. That's one crowd looking down when all of a sudden they hear the rumble off in the distance of this other crowd that is coming forward and this crowd is jubilant this crowd is excited this crowd is walking with a master who's been doing marvelous miracles in their midst 
And so they are looking up. They are joyful. And, and in this moment, in this time, suddenly these two crowds collide. And my friends, this was no chance encounter. This was a coordination of remarkable, deliberate timing. Only God could orchestrate timing like the event that we see here in this passage. And did you know, my friends, that God is still in the work of providentially aligning circumstances for Jesus to move to meet our needs? God is still working in providence in this way. Even when this woman could not see him, Jesus was moving to meet her need. Likewise, even when we can't see his hand at work, Jesus may very well be moving to meet your need right now, my friend. And friends, are you here today going through a time of sorrow and grief? Well, if you are, I want you to know that Jesus has rich compassion for you. Look up. Though you may not see him, he is moving to meet your needs. If you are here and you have not entrusted your life to him, look up. This is no chance encounter. The fact that you are here today hearing the message of the gospel is no chance encounter. God doesn't have random chances of things that happen. God works in providence. God aligns circumstances. And if you are here and his spirit is tugging on your heart to trust in him, then my friends, you should know that God works in this way to align these circumstances even on a day like this. This is no chance encounter. God works through situations like this so that his compassion can be on display. And with compassion, Jesus moves to meet our needs. But thirdly, with compassion, Jesus gives us grace. Notice what this woman and her son did to earn this special favor, this special miracle from Jesus. What did they do? Absolutely nothing, right? I mean, Jesus ultimately sees the woman weeping, and Jesus has compassion. This woman didn't ask for Jesus' help. This young man didn't deserve Jesus' favor. It's not that this young man was like, you know, some finely dressed corpse. Oh, he looks better than any other corpse. Let me raise him from the dead. No, there's nothing special that this man or his mother do. Jesus simply moves to meet the need by his grace. Grace is a word that we use to describe when God gives us merit that we do not earn ourselves. Things that we do not deserve, good things that God grants to us are what we would describe as exercise, an exercise of His grace toward us. And Jesus is a Savior, my friends, who is full of grace. And the message of grace brings hope. The message of grace says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.5. God does not save anyone because they've worked hard to get their corpse, this dead stature that we're in currently, in some better shape. When we were dead, he made us alive so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. We read in Ephesians 2, 7. 
And my friend, if you're going to be saved from death, it will only be because you have received God's grace. Don't get the impression that you need to roll out the checklist and start saying, let me see if I can get all these things done. Let me see if I can live righteously. Let me see if I can walk away from all these sins in my life. Let me see if I can just get all these things done. Let me, let me make sure I'm in church every Sunday. Let me make sure I'm praying the right prayers. Let me, let me make sure that I've walked the aisle. Ultimately, it's not the deeds that we do. It is only God's grace that makes all the eternal difference for us, my friends. And when we come to faith in Christ, it's ultimately that. He's done all the work. By his riches, he's granted us the opportunity. And we simply trust in him. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's grace. And so we cry out to death. Death, your days are numbered because Jesus is compassionate. But also, death, your days are numbered because Jesus rules over you. In these verses, we find three ways that Jesus rules over death. He dominates death. First, Jesus can crash a funeral. I mean, that's indeed what he does. Coming up to a corpse and touching a coffin is just not something that the Jews would expect anyone to do. This was a shocking moment. In, In the book of Numbers in chapter 19, Verses 11 through 22, we find this kind of explanation of ultimately how individuals become ceremonially unclean when they touch a corpse or even when they touch that tent that the corpse has died in. And so it would have been shocking that someone would be willing to step up in this way. For a normal man, this would mean that you would be becoming ceremonially unclean. But ultimately, Jesus transforms this dead man into something different. But the people in this funeral procession were surely shocked. We read that the bearers of this coffin came to a halt. And this dead man would not stay that way for long. Because next we see that Jesus dominates death in another way. Jesus can command the dead. When the funeral procession stops, Jesus simply speaks. He simply speaks to the dead man. He simply says in verse 14... Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, you might have some sentimental practices like going to the funeral home or going to the graveyard and and speaking to the dead, right? I I mean, there can be some therapeutic value in that sometimes, just going and speaking and just kind of expressing your heart to someone that's passed on before you. But none of us would go with the expectation that if we went to the graveyard or we went to the funeral home and we told the individuals there in that coffin, arise. We wouldn't expect anything to happen there, right? I mean, there's obviously something extra special that's happening in this moment. Would we all agree with that? Jesus does something miraculous here. Jesus shows that he is not like you and me. Was Jesus man fully man? Yes, absolutely. But Jesus was more than that as well. Jesus is Lord. And my friends, you must know this. He is Lord, not just of the living. He is also Lord of the dead. That's so clearly on display here in this passage. Because all it takes is Jesus' word. Simply by speaking the word. He makes a transformation in this one who was dead. And God is the one who ultimately works through his word to bring his will to pass. That's what we read about in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
Isaiah 55, 11. So my word will be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And by his powerful word, Jesus shows in this passage that he is Lord over death. He shows that he has divine power. And Jesus would proclaim this of himself. John chapter 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Friends, do you hear that? Jesus is Lord over death. And he will call forth all the dead to this time of judgment. You've got a resurrection in your future. As we move along, we'll see a little more about what the nature of that resurrection could be. But we know that Jesus dominates death because he could command the dead. But, but also, thirdly, we know that Jesus dominates death because he can restore life. Now, not only does Jesus command the dead, his command is ultimately obeyed. This man came back to life. In verse 15, we see the dead man sat up and began to speak. And in this moment, Jesus shows himself to be God in the flesh. And friends, hear me on this. Nobody else can restore life to the dead. This wasn't dying on the table and then at, at the point where a few pumps of the heart and a, and a few breaths in the lungs would make a difference. This wasn't CPR on display. This man had been laid in a coffin. This man was being carried out by an entourage out of the city. They had to be notified. There had been some time that had passed from this man's passing. This man was good and dead. And all Jesus did was speak to him and his life was restored. That, my friends, is an act of God. Now, biblically, other individuals had been involved in raising the dead. Notably, there were two great prophets. Two great prophets who really were involved as God's instruments in raising the dead uh, in the Old Testament. The first of those was Elijah. Elijah, we read in 1 Kings chapter 17, was used by God to raise a widow's son from the dead in this coastal city known as Zarephath. Now Elijah prayed to the Lord, his God, and stretched himself out over this young man's body three times before saying, O Lord my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. And in 1 Kings 17, 22, the Bible reveals the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of that child returned to him and he revived. So who gave life in that moment? It was God, right? It was the Lord. Ultimately, Elijah was just an instrument who ushered up the prayer and life was restored. 
Then we read about a similar sort of event in the life of another prophet. The prophet who came right after Elijah was a prophet named, known as Elisha. And over in 2 Kings 4, we read that Elisha was used by God to restore life to another young lad who was dead in a town known as Shunem. You might have heard of the Shumanite woman. It was this woman's son. We read in 2 Kings 4, 33, that Elisha too shut the door and prayed to the Lord. Then he went through this progression of kind of walking back and forth, presumably continuing to pray to God for help, laying over this child, sensing warmth in his body before ultimately this child's life restored to him and he sneezed seven times. That's what you read about in 2 Kings chapter 4. Who raised the dead in that instance? Again, with all of that praying that Elisha carries on in that passage, it's clear that God did the miracle that was in response to Elisha's prayer. These were two great prophets who were involved in two great resurrections. It's no wonder that we'll read here in just a little bit that when people saw this event, they would say a great prophet has arisen among us in verse 16 because that was very true. A great prophet had indeed arisen. And in fact... I told you that Elisha's miracle happened in the town of Shunem. That was just over the hill from where Nain is. So Jesus seems to be deliberately showing individuals something about his prophetic powers, even in going to this place that's just across the hill from an area that was also likewise just known for one event here in the Scriptures. But for Jesus in this moment, this was not a matter of appealing to a higher power. This is not a matter of praying to God. This was a matter of being God. Jesus doesn't pray in Luke's account. He speaks and life is restored. Only God could do that, my friends. And out of compassion, Jesus restores life. He says to the widow, do not weep. Now, that'd be a pretty cruel thing for us to say at a funeral, right? Do not weep. But Jesus gives this widow a reason not to weep. He restores life to her son and gives him back to her. Now, sometimes I will talk to my kids and tell them, do not weep. And by that, I mean, quit doing those annex where you're trying to get your way, right? I mean, that's one way you can say, you know, quit your crying, right? Another way you might say that is, is if, if, if I tell my kids, do not weep because I know the problem that they're facing and I know that I have the ability to meet their need. That's the manner in which Jesus is speaking to this woman. Here in these moments, he's showing her ultimately that her present sorrows are not beyond his capabilities. He's showing her that he is in charge of this situation. The thing that causes her to weep is the thing which he has lordship and authority and power and deity over. And so Jesus ultimately turns her sorrows into joys. He makes a difference. He causes her to look up. And friend, I just want to say to you, let Jesus turn your sorrows into everlasting joys. Let him turn your situations of grief into everlasting hope. This is what he delights to do. And friends, I just want to tell you, wouldn't it be pretty awesome to be the guy in this account, right? I mean, to be someone who was forever ingrained in every Bible that was printed since the time Bibles began to be printed or even when they were copied by, by hand, uh, to, to be remembered as the guy that Jesus came and spoke to and raised to life. Wouldn't that be a pretty cool sort of thing? Yeah, that would be a pretty cool legacy, right? 
But I tell you, I'd rather have what we have in Christ than what that man had any day of the week. Because Jesus has done a greater work for the redeemed than he did for that man. You know why? Because when Jesus redeemed his own, he did a permanent work. And as great as it would have been to be in the hall of history as someone that Jesus healed physically in this sort of way, that pales in comparison to the work that Jesus has done for those who are now redeemed by him. How so, you might say? Well, because the tears of the redeemed will be dried forever. He tells this woman not to weep. But this woman probably still had moments when she would remember the passing of her husband. And she would weep. This woman maybe still bumped her foot into the door and spent some time weeping, right? But in Christ, we find that one day, every tear shall be dried. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more pain. And that's a forever sort of ending to our pain. Likewise, the death of the redeemed will be defeated forever. You see, this man, he was raised to life, but he could have been run over by a donkey on the way home, right? I mean, there's nothing to say that this guy didn't, didn't die just again yet another week later. This was not an eternal sort of resurrection. This was Jesus showing ultimately that he has the power over death. But there is no salvation that's conveyed in ultimately what this man receives. Furthermore, the destination of the redeemed will be a new dwelling. You see, this man was left to live in this cursed world with this mortal body that had already proven itself to be failed. But ultimately, we have a hope that as Lizzie talked about, as we sang just a little bit ago, that we shall dwell in the presence of our King forever. We have an eternal dwelling in Him. And then the redeemed are given back to their father. Jesus took this man who had been raised from his death and he gave him back to his mother, which would be an awesome thing, I'm sure. I'm sure that was a great, glad reunion for this man and his mother. But what Jesus offers us is a restoration to our heavenly father a restoration of that which was cursed there from Genesis chapter 3. That which was cursed there even in the Garden of Eden as mankind sinned and fell from the grace of our God. As we were divided from Him because of our willful disobedience, this chasm has characterized every individual who's ever lived since that time. And Jesus came to restore us to our Father, to give us back to Him. And that, my friends, is so much greater than what this man experienced here in this moment. It would be good to awaken to the command of a great prophet, but how much more wonderful will it be to awaken to the command of one who is able to grant eternal life. And friends, that's what Jesus offers us by grace through faith in his finished work timothy keller has said all death can now do to christians is to make their lives infinitely better do you get that all death can do to you is to make your life infinitely more wonderful if christ is indeed your lord and so we rejoice with the taunt that says death your days are numbered because jesus rules over you 
But this truth calls for a response from each and every one of us. And so as we look at the final two verses of this passage, I say to each and every one of you, sinner, your options are evident because Jesus dominates death. In this response, we see three different options, three different responses of sinners who are involved in this, three potential options of how we could respond. First, you can try to do what you should have already been doing, right? We, we read here that when Jesus raised the dead, when Jesus interrupted this funeral, people were gripped with fear. I mean, we can understand that, right? <laughs> I mean, if we were at a funeral and the guy gets up and starts to walk around, we're going to be kind of, you know, a little shocked. There's going to be some hair standing up on the back of your neck, right? Was God any more powerful in that moment than he had been the seconds and the hours and the days and the years before that? No. They simply came to see his power in person. He had always been powerful. He had always been compassionate. Therefore, they should have always been glorifying him. But in this moment, it's like they're caught by the boss when they're not doing their job, right? And so we read in verse 16, fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God. And friend, I just want to ask you, are you glorifying God with your life now? Or, or do you need to see some sort of miraculous thing that he does in your life before you're willing to do that? Because he's, he's no less glorious now than when that event might happen. Are you going to wait till the resurrection of all the dead to say how glorious he is? Or are you going to entrust your life to him now? Are you going to glorify him now? We should also know that you can't earn your own way to salvation. Seeing God's glory on display in Christ and dusting yourself off in this attempt to, to earn his favor will never be enough. It's essentially like these people all of a sudden get that Jesus is something more. And so they say, all right, well, let's show them how good we are at living for God, right? Let's dust ourselves off and prove ourselves to be worthy. But Jesus must be the one who makes the difference. Trying to go in on your own without trusting in him will not suffice. That's a wrong option on display. But there's another wrong option on display. You can conveniently celebrate what God has done. These people in fear began to celebrate. They began saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And that's true. I've talked about how ultimately Jesus would probably go into this place as a deliberate display that he was a certain kind of prophet. But Moses talked about a different sort of prophet. And Jesus was that prophet. That's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, these following words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, the Lord says, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Is Jesus a great prophet? Yes, he is a great prophet. He is the greatest prophet who ever lived. But that is not all that we must recognize Jesus is. You see, the Muslims agree that Jesus was a great prophet. The Mormons agree that Jesus was a great prophet. The Jehovah's Witnesses agree that Jesus was a great prophet. A lot of folks say that Jesus was a great prophet. He was a good preacher. But none of these would agree that he is the very Son of God who has come down from above. That he alone is the Messiah. He alone is God in the flesh. He alone is the Savior that we need. 
And to the identification of Jesus' prophet, the gathered crowds also began saying, God has visited his people. These words were so much truer than they realized. How do I know that? Because they thought God was working, but they didn't realize that God was living and breathing. They didn't realize that Jesus was in fact God in the flesh before their very eyes. And so they did not entrust themselves to him. How do I know that? Well, later in Luke, we read about this. Luke chapter 19, we read, When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw upon a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another why because you did not recognize the time of your visitation you see this great crowd knew that god had visited them but they didn't understand that jesus was god and so they missed the time of their visitation and so they faced the judgment of God. Yes, Jesus was a great prophet, but he was so much greater than that. He didn't just come to tell you about God. He came as God in the flesh to be the Lord of your life. He came to be the source of your eternal hope. He came to be the one that you entrust all of your eternity to. And friend, I ask you, have you cast all of your hope on this one? Have you entrusted your life and all of your eternity to Him? If not, then I say, do not delay. Only He can save you. Only Jesus saves. And Jesus didn't come to be confined within this box that we think is comfortable for Him to live in. It's no honor for us to give Him a great title, but to treat Him as something less than He truly is. We cannot deny that He's the very Son of God. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, as the old creed would say. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than a good moral teacher. He is the Lord of all. And so don't just conveniently celebrate what God has done through him. No, choose the third option. You can yield your life to him as Christ, the son of the living God. Those who spent their lives with Jesus came to this stark realization. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks, you know, who do men say that I am? And the, and the disciples rattle off this list of individuals that others are saying maybe Jesus is. You know, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus asked the question that each of us must answer in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And so I ask, have you entrusted your life to Jesus as the Christ, as God in the flesh, anointed to deliver you? And for Christians... I just want to encourage you to take hope because we walk with the one who walked out of the tomb. Jesus is the compassionate commander who has dominated.
death. As a father was dying, he asked his family to gather around so that he could speak to all of them. At his deathbed, just one final time, he had only a few minutes left to live. The doctors had told him so, so he took the opportunity to say farewell to his four children. And as he addressed each one of them, he said, Good night, Daniel. Good night, Kevin. Good night, Kelly. And goodbye, Zach. Zach said, now wait a minute, why did you tell everyone else goodnight and then tell me goodbye? Well, with tears streaming down his face, his father told his son, because your brothers and your sisters have all entrusted their lives to Jesus. So I'll see them again soon in glory. But because you refuse to do the same, I'm afraid that you and I may never meet again. You see, my friends, Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus conquers death. Jesus rules over the dead, over the living. Jesus provides eternal hope. Is this the hope that you are clinging to? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace so richly on display in Jesus. And Father, as we think about the curse of death, it takes a little bit for some of us to retrain our minds at just what you have in store. But sometimes even as Christians, we find this dismal perspective on death when the reality is that you have granted eternal life. You have granted something that will endure. And so we thank you for that grace which is on display even in this passage we've looked at here today. We thank you that you show us our Father, that you have sent a Savior who can conquer this greatest of humanity's disappointments and regrets, the thing which we look to with the most disdain, O oh Lord, you have conquered through Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would all, each and every one of us individually, as your Spirit calls upon us in our hearts, that we would cast all of our hopes on the one who can speak to the dead and grant to them life enduring life eternal life and so father if there are any who are gathered here on this day who are not certain about their eternal destination then i pray that your grace would be on display so that they would know that they can cast all their cares on jesus because he has definitively dealt with death he has conquered the grave as jesus has died and has been buried and has risen again. He provides hope for all of us who place faith in Him. Father, let this truth resound in every heart so that Your grace might be on display. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the compassionate Savior who dominates death. Do you trust that? Is that your hope for all of eternity? We're going to share in the final moment of singing together, so I'm going to ask you to stand here in just a few moments. But if you aren't absolutely sure, if you aren't sure that Christ is the one who has paid, that you've entrusted all of your hope for all of eternity to Him, then my friends, I pray and I encourage and I hope that you would make sure of that here today before you leave this place. As the Lord calls you to respond, you respond. There's some prayer you need to make, some decision you need to make known, if there's some guidance that you need, I would love to be an instrument of God in helping you
through whatever he's calling you to on this day. Let's stand together and sing. Mm-hmm.